0: We are living in the first age of the world's history in which men have universally denied guilt. It used to be that we Catholics were the only ones who believed in Immaculate Conception. Today almost everyone believes he is Immaculately Conceived. about the only sin that is known and recognized today is a social sin. We even now prepare children for communion without confession, lest we should give them a sense of guilt. But you need only talk to a child, let a mother tell a child, mother doesn't love you anymore. And you'll see how well that child understands guilt and a broken relationship. Dostoevsky, the Russian novelist of the last century, said that this time was coming. He said, an hour is coming when men will say, there is no sin, there is no guilt, there is only hunger and they will come crying and fawning to our feet, saying, Give us bread. What are the two escapes today from sin and guilt? The first is, we are patient, not penitent. We are sick. We are not guilty. Now, it is true that Sin does often produce abnormal manifestations, but the abnormal manifestation of guilt does not mean there is no normal basis for it. Over 400 years ago, when Shakespeare wrote his great tragedy, Macbeth, here were two people, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, who contrived to kill the king to win the crown. Long before we knew anything about psychosis and neuroses macbeth is described as having a psychosis he thinks he sees before him the instrument of murder he says what is this i see before me a dagger with a handle toward my hand there was no dagger there that was the abnormal way guilt came out. Lady Macbeth washed her hands every quarter of an hour. She thought she saw spots of blood. And she asked if all the waters of the seven seas were not enough to wash the blood incarnadine from her hands. She was really guilty of murder though psychically sick. And then the other escape today from guilt is rationalization. We find excuses for what we have done, rationalize our actions. I was once instructing a stewardess on an international airline. And we came to the subject of confession and I instructed her for an hour and she said, After hearing confession, I am certain now I do not want to become a Catholic. Well, I said, take one more hour, and then you may leave. Well, at the end of the next hour, she was in a veritable creed. She screamed, shouted, let me out of here. Now I'll never become a Catholic. I said, my dear girl, there is no proportion between what you have heard and the way you are acting. have you had an abortion? She said, yes. Then it came out. I afterward received her into the church, witnessed her marriage, and later on baptized a baby. You see, she was rationalizing the hidden sin of abortion by attacking the sacrament of confession which was the sole way in which he could escape from this burden of guilt. Though we deny sin, it's very real. And our question tonight is, how are our sins forgiven? Think it out in your own mind first. What do you think is the ultimate cause of the forgiveness of sins? <laughs> Well, if you will look up the ninth chapter of the Epistles of the Hebrews, you will find the explanation. I think it is in the 22nd verse. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Without the shedding of blood, Why blood? Well, sin is in the blood. It is in the blood of the alcoholic. It is in the blood of the addict. It is in the blood of the degenerate. It is in the blood of everyone who is diseased, which is an effect of sin. And somehow or other, in order to get rid of sin, we have to pour out blood. That's one reason. And another reason is sin is an infinite offence against god and because we are sinners we deserve death and life is in the blood so death would require therefore the shedding of blood and the more precious the blood was the one that is shed the more valuable the life so when god shed his blood That was the remission of all of our guilt. This is how our sins are forgiven. Now let's go through the scriptures, as much as we can in a short period of time, and show you what might be called the scarlet ribbon of redemption. Remember when Rahab, who had a house in the wall of Jericho, At the spies from Israel, she asked to be spared. And Joshua and Caleb said, let down a scarlet cord. And when we come to take Jericho, we will spare you. That scarlet cord will be the symbol now of this pouring out of blood. Or rather, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. When our first parents sinned, they found themselves naked. While they had original justice, the aura of God's grace surrounded them. When they lost that, they felt exposure. And shame is exposure. How do they cover it up? With fig leaves. They dried. They were ashamed again. How was the shame of Adam and Eve covered up? Read the 21st verse of the third chapter of Genesis and you will find a mysterious line. The Lord God made tunics of skins for Adam and his wife and clothed them. There are three elements here. First, God did something. Secondly, there was the shedding of blood. Because in order to get the skins of animals, there had to be an animal blood shed. And thirdly, Adam and Eve were not killed. An animal was killed. So God does something. He does it vicariously through a substitute. And thirdly, it involves the shedding of blood. Now, watch this theme be developed all through the Old Testament. (sighs) Cain killed Abel. Cain was afraid of being murdered. Cain had offered a sacrifice that was unacceptable. It was a technological sacrifice sacrifice of the fruits of the earth, which cost him nothing, and the earth was cursed. Abel offered a blood sacrifice, thus continuing the tradition that was given to his father Adam. So Cain was now fearful of being slain after he had killed his brother. And God said he would put a mark upon him to preserve him from being murdered. What was the mark that was put upon Cain? We do not know for sure, but it was probably the blood of his own brother. God marked his brow. We come to Abraham. 1,700 years before Christ. He's called out of the land of Ur, old Mesopotamia. God speaks to him only three times in his long journey. He comes to the land which God will select for him, which is to be the land of Cana. And Abraham is promised by God, Abraham and Sarah, his wife, that they will have a progeny as numerous as the stars of the heaven and the sands of the sea. A prophecy which has been literally fulfilled. For there are three world religions which claim Abraham as their father. Christianity, Muslimism, Judaism. But when Abraham is 80 and his wife is 70, there's no progeny. Where is this promise of God? Sarah suggests that he consort with their Egyptian maid Hagar. And out of that union of Abraham and Hagar was made Ishmael. whom the Moslems claim as one of their founders, but not historic. But this was not the era that God promised. When Abraham is a hundred and Sarah ninety, God says, now you will have a son and a progeny. Sarah laughed. They were rejuvenated. And the child was called laughter, which is the meaning of Isaac. Now, after all these years, Abraham as a son needs to be the beginning of this progeny which exists today and to which we belong. Then God says to Abraham, Offer your son in sacrifice. What obedience. Faith on the part of Abraham. In the epistle of the Hebrews, we read that Abraham willingly offered his son knowing that God would raise him from the dead. But in any case, confining ourselves to the story of the Old Testament, the back of Isaac is now laden with wood. for sacrifice. And three days, Isaac climbs the mount, probably Mount Moriah. For three days by intent, the sun is dead, because Abraham knows he must sacrifice it. Here you see in type the heavenly father offering his son. And when finally they come to the top of the mount, and the wood is taken off the back of Isaac, he says to his father, Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? And those words were caught out from the top of that mount, when they floated down through the century. Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? Abraham answered, God will provide. And the ram was found in the bushes, and that was offered in sacrifice instead of Isaac. One, God does something. Two, it is done vicariously. The ram is offered instead of Isaac. And thirdly, there was the shedding of blood, for without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Now we come to Moses. The Israelites are in bondage in Egypt. Pharaoh refuses to be moved by the miracle which God worked. And each one of those plagues of Egypt was directed against their idea of God. The gods of gnats, the fleas of frogs, and the sun like. And God, losing patience now with Pharaoh, tells Moses, This night take a lamb. One year old, without blemish." Say it. Eat the food standing for your pilgrims. Take the blood and sprinkle it over the doorpost. Not on the floor. For blood is sacred. And this very night, a destroying angel will pass through the land of Egypt. Killing the firstborn of man and beast, And when the angel sees blood over the doorpost, he will pass over that house. That is the origin of the Passover. Or the past. God did something. He did it vicariously. The Jewish people were saved by the Lamb, and furthermore, it involved the shedding of blood. Moses now leads his people out into the desert. And here we have a series of wonders and types that all stress this notion of without the shedding of blood There is no remission of sin. One of the types was the serpent. The Jews in the desert had been bitten by poisonous serpents. God said, make a serpent of brass. Hang it up on the crotch of a tree. And everyone who looks at that brass serpent will be cured of the poison bite. Now, there's absolutely nothing in a brass serpent that will cure snake bite. Nothing. This is merely one of the figures of the Old Testament. And incidentally, to those of you who teach catechism, that is the way that catechism should also be taught through the types in the Old Testament pointing to Christ. Now we jump quickly to the New Testament, but we'll return again to the Old, because I want to develop the idea of the serpent. The night our blessed Lord was visited by Nicodemus. This learned man who only appears at night in the gospel, never in the daytime, And our Lord said to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. There are two or three figures in Scripture where they are applied both to Satan and to Christ. When is the Lion? The Lion of Judah? In the rugianus The other is the serpent. That is because when the Antichrist comes, you will have a religious pose to seize even the elect. So our Lord is saying now to Nicodemus, I will be lifted up on that cross just as Moses lifted the serpent. As that serpent looked exactly like the serpents that bit the Israelites, but had no venom in it, so when I am lifted on the cross, I will look as if I'm full of the poison of sin, condemned, guilty. But as there was no venom in that poison, there will be no sin in me. This was a type. Another was the scapegoat. The Jews on the feast of the atonement would bring two goats before the high priest. They would choose one by lot to be killed. Which of the two will you that I release under you, Christ or Barabbas? And when one goat had been killed, the priest would first lay his hands over the live goat as we lay our hand over the chalice at the beginning of the canon of the Mass. Laying all the sins of Israel upon that goat As in the Mass, we lay them on Christ. Then that goat would be led by a Gentile. For our Lord was delivered over to the Gentile. Taken out about 60 or 70 miles and thrown over a precipice. That was the goat. In other words, we had all of our sins thrown upon Christ. And he bears them all away. And we could do this in virtue of the shedding of blood of the other goats. And so we might go on in the Old Testament. Perhaps we have time for one more. There were two instances in the Old Testament where the Jews in the desert were short of water. One was at Rabidim and the other was at Kadesh. And the incidents were about 38 years apart. I am reading to you now I would read both to you, but I am reading the second one at Kadesh. If you listen very closely, you will get the deep mystery in it. But you have to listen very closely. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, Take a staff, and then with Aaron your brother, assembled all the community And in front of them, speak to the rock, and it will yield its water. Thus you will produce water for the community out of the rock, for them and for their beasts to drink. Moses left the presence of God with the staff as he had commanded him. Then he and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and he said to them, Listen to me, you rebels. Must we get water out of this rock for you? Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff. The water gushed out in abundance, and they all drank, men and beasts. And then God said, And for this you do not go into the promised land. What did Moses do wrong? Three times he asked God, let me into that promised land. God said, no, ask me no more. He did finally get into the transfiguration. But at any rate, for the moment, he was not allowed in. Now, what did Moses do that was wrong and what? Does it imply? And what is the mystery? In the previous incident of the rock at Rapidin, God said, Strike the rock, then the waters will come forth. And Moses struck the rock. This time, if you notice it carefully, God said, Speak to the rock. Speak. And Moses struck it. What was wrong about that? Well, permit to read a rather long parenthesis, and I will explain it to you. Oh no, it's getting too long. This will take an hour and a half. At least an hour and a half, and we're only up with the book of Numbers. Think of how much more we have to go in the scripture. I'm sorry I ever mentioned that. So I will not go into what I promised. But Moses was not allowed to go in. For this reason, Christ is the rock. Christ the rock is struck once. Crucified. There is no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. After Christ has been struck and offered his life for us, from that point on there's intercession. He's in heaven. We intercede for him. Moses was implying that there was a need for a second redeemer, striking a rock a second time. When God said, only speak. That was the reason he did not kiss him. Believe me, there were some severe, severe punishments meted out for not carrying out the correct single of the liturgy and the commands of God. The two sons of Aaron, for example, Nadab and Abihu, on the day of their ordination, were struck dead by God. And Aaron you? they deserved it, their own father. Aaron was high, Moses had Take the bodies outside of the temple. On the day of ordination. Why? Well, because in the temple, here was the altar of intercession. At the very entrance to the temple was the altar of sacrifice, beyond which was the labor. God gave us the exact dimensions of everything in the temple except that labor. Because not all of us need the same amount of washing. So there was the altar of sacrifice, and here the altar of intercession. These two newly ordained priests had been drinking, and they lighted the altar of intercession with an illicit fire, says the scripture. Why illicit? Because the law of God was that intercession. Fires must always be lighted from the altar of sacrifice. The way to heaven is purchased by the death and the sacrifice and the shedding of the blood of Christ. That's how we may intercede. Nadab and Abihu said, we need no sacrifice. We need no lamb. We need no shedding of blood. We'll go to heaven without it. they died the day of their ordination. And that was why Moses was not allowed to... Now we come quickly, as we must, for purposes of time, to the first Passover of our Lord's public life. All through the history, There had been the shedding of the blood of the lamb. Josephus, the Jewish historian of the first, end of the first century, tells us that at one Passover there were 260,000 lambs that were slain in the temple. At this Passover, see... John the Baptist was at the Jordan preaching his hard gospel of penance and remission of sin. And he could see on that roadway down to the Jordan just a few miles and then up from Jordan to Jerusalem hundreds of thousands of pilgrims leading their land. The children would tie purple, red, scarlet ribbons around the little lambs. Were to be offered in sacrifice and all the while the atmosphere was filled with that question of isaac where is the lamb where is the lamb and as john the baptist wants this watch this procession of lambs he suddenly stopped he saw one in the crowd and he said look the Lamb of God, behold Him who takes away the sin of the world. Where is the Lamb? The Lamb that God. And as all sin offerings in the temple had to be thrown outside of the home of the people of God, so he was driven out. And at the conclusion of his agony on Good Friday, two incidents in this great temple of Jerusalem. Which was then in the course of construction by Herod the Great. There was this great curtain, hyacinth, purple, gold, with cherubim worked into it. See, the cherubim guard is even. The cherubim watched over the tabernacle, as ordered by God in the construction of the tabernacle of the Old Testament. And Saint Peter says that the cherubim, the angels, watch and wonder. Incidentally, that is really what there should be around every tabernacle if we read our old testament. He understood the figures of it well. So these cherubim were worked in out of this curtain. And the high priest was ready in the temple to celebrate the great Passover feast. So he took blood in his hand, and he had to sprinkle this curtain with the blood of the lion. Because it was the blood of the lamb that would allow him to enter once a year into the holy of holies, that sacred precinct where originally there were the tables of Moses, the rod of Aaron, and the man of the desert. And as he was preparing to do this, suddenly the veil was rent, and a great earthquake read not from bottom to top as if a man might do it, but from top to bottom. And at that very moment, a soldier had taken a lance and run it into the side of Christ. Blood and water poured out. Blood the price of our redemption. Water the condition of our regeneration and rebirth. And at that particular moment, The real holy of holies was opened. Another veil has been pierced. The veil of the heart of Christ opened—not the earthly holy of holies, but heaven itself. And in the epistle to the Hebrews, we read this interesting story of the veil of our Lord's flesh. So now, my friends, the blood of Jesus makes us free to enter boldly into the sanctuary by the new living way which he has opened for us through the curtain which is his flesh. Heaven is open. Sins are forgiven. But without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And what a privilege we, priests, have to offer this blood of the Son in Mass to the Heavenly Father. And for you to receive it in Holy Communion. For this is the life by which we live. And in gratitude for this bountiful redemption, for we are not bought with gold and silver, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. In gratitude for it, the least we priests and religious could do would be to spend another In gratitude for that precious blood. And in a special way. Because of the growing influence of the demonic. Of which I shall speak tomorrow morning. For it is overcome by the invocation of the blood of Christ. In conclusion, then, sin is not the worst thing in the world. The worst thing in the world is the denial of sin. If I am blind and denied of any such thing as light, will I ever see? If I am deaf and denied of any such thing as harmony, will I ever hear? If I deny there's any such thing as sin, how can I ever be forgiven? This is the unforgivable sin. For it makes redemption possible. Never despair. Always rejoice. For if you had never seen, you never could call Jesus.